I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. With the postponement of Tokyo 2020, this week marks one year out from the Tokyo 2021 Paralympic Games. The Paralympics are held every four years following the Summer and Winter Olympic Games. Para-athletes have a range of disabilities like impaired range of movement, limb deficiency, or vision impairment, just to name a few. So you'll find that para-athletes have a unique strength of character that combines mental toughness, physical ability, and outstanding agility to produce sporting performances that often redefine the boundaries of possibility. Today's guest began his professional career in the U.S. Navy as an explosive ordnance disposal officer. Brad Snyder deployed to Iraq in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2008, and he deployed again two years later to Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. Now, after six months of assault operations, Brad was severely injured in the explosion of a nearby IED, and he sustained complete vision loss as a result of that explosion. But take note, what's incredible about Brad's story isn't what happened to him. It's how he responded to it. As a part of his rehabilitation process, Brad returned to the pool for the first time since college, and after just a few months of training, he earned a spot on the U.S. Paralympic national team for swimming. And at the 2012 Paralympics, he competed in seven events, earning two gold medals and a silver. And of course, in epic fashion, his victory in the 400-meter freestyle occurred on the 7th of September 2012, which marked exactly one year from the day he suffered his vision loss. Brad medically retired from the Naval Service in 2013, and three years later, he returned to the Paralympic Games, this time in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Brad competed in five events, earning three gold medals, one silver medal, and he broke a world record that had stood for over 30 years. But before I introduce Brad and his absolutely amazing story, I want you to stop and subscribe to this show right now because the next show could be the one that sends you on the path to complete and achieve your goals. You don't want to miss a single episode. And while you're there, take a second to rate and review us because it really does help us continue to bring awe-inspiring guests like Brad on this show. Now, I believe that there's gold in your future, so let's dive on into this episode. Brad Snyder, I am so honored to have you here with us today. Welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Thanks, Laura. It's an honor to be here as well. Now, I have to tell you, I spoke with Mariel Zaguna. She's actually our first guest on this podcast. And I was asking her about other athletes I should talk about. And you were, boom, the first one that came to mind. So I'm so excited that you're here. Uh, well, I'm excited to be here. And it's excited. I, I'm, I'm pleased that she was the one who recommended me. Uh, we had a, a really cool moment that kind of turned into a funny story. The first time I met her was when we came back from London. And you know she had been the flag bearer. Uh, for the opening ceremonies for the Olympic Games, I had been the flag bearer for the closing games for the Paralympics. So we, at the DC visit, got to hand the flag to President Obama. Um, And it was, yeah, it was a really cool moment. But what made it funny was there were like these Secret Service and protocol folks that were really uptight and tied around the axle about who was going to stand where and, you know, when's this going to happen and when's this other thing going to happen? And uh, they were really thrown for a loop because I was blind and they had everything labeled on the ground with masking tape. Here's where each person stands. And they were like, how is this blind guy going to know where to stand? And they were like, really like, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And and Marielle and I were just standing there and she just looks up and she goes, I'll just guide him where he needs to go. We're going to be together the whole time. And they were like, 
oh, that is brilliant. Perfect. <laughs> uh, so then we stood there and we were like at our little masking tape line and President Obama, Vice President Joe Biden and the, uh, the First Lady Michelle Obama come out to the dais there and they start kind of giving their like rally speech like, you know, we're doing this. We, we saw this. And we're so excited to have you guys here and blah, 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 blah. And uh, the, the, he had kind of blown through the protocol of what was supposed to happen. And eventually the, the president realized what he had done. And he kind of looked at Mariel and I and was like, what are you two doing standing here for? And we were like, sir, we're supposed to give you this flag. And he's like, oh, that's great. And he like came over <laughs> and he took the flag and he shook our hands and he gave us a hug or whatever. And, uh, and that it was just like this really chaotic and crazy moment. But it was neat to stand there with her and have that opportunity to do that. That's a unique kind of bonding right there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome. Well, I want to back up a little bit and I, I love to kind of um, talk about where everybody started. And I know you swam in college at the U.S. Naval Academy. I mean, were you always a swimmer growing up? Yeah, I didn't start competitively swimming until I was 11, but I grew up in the on the Gulf Coast of Florida and my family were beach people. We would always be in and out of the water. And like, we were the type that the second you hit the beach, the first thing you do is drop everything and just run into the water. You know, uh, you, you set up camp afterward, but yeah, run into the water and do a couple, you know, catch a couple waves and, uh, you know, just kind of check it out and then go back and build your castle or whatever else. So we've been water people my whole life moving into around 11 or so. My dad just kind of wanted to get me out of the house, uh, and start vectoring my energy towards something productive. Um, and I remember him saying, do you want to go try out for the swim team? And me being like, oh yeah, we're, like I've been in and out of the water. I'm a really good body surfer, all that sort of stuff. I'm going to be really awesome at swimming. I kind of thought that in my mind. I was like, sure, that's going to be something I'm really good at. It was so humbling to go to the pool for the first time and watch what competitive swimming was all about. Just, you know, this, these beautiful, graceful, four different strokes. I didn't even know there were four different strokes. I didn't know how to do a flip turn. I didn't know how to stay straight, um, any of these things. And so I remember thinking, what have I gotten myself into? And I remember being really pleased that the coach just let me sort of join the team. I didn't even feel like I was good enough to join the team, but he let me swim in the outside lane. And man, it was love at first sight. Like I just loved the sport. I loved the different skills. I loved working hard and trying to improve. And like you said, I worked my way all the way up to collegiate athletics, had a great college career um, and did, you know, I kind of knew when I was around 16 or so that I wasn't going to make the Olympic team, but it was a great opportunity to go to college and I hung up my Speedo in 2006 and never thought I'd come back to the sport. And it, it's been a crazy ride back. Well, and you didn't just swim in college. I mean, you were the team captain your final year. Like, what, what did that mean to you to be the team captain? It was huge. You know, it was kind of a remarkable experience. I had a hard time in college balancing everything. The Naval Academy is a tough spot as far as the demands on the midshipman time. Uh, the, I was taking a lot of credit hours in an engineering degree. I wasn't doing particularly well in school. I loved swimming, but I had plateaued really bad. You know, my freshman year was probably my best year of swimming in that half of my career. And to work as hard as I was working to not drop any time uh, year after year, I got to a point where I almost wanted to give it up after my junior year. And right as I was mulling that over, you know, we had a peer, a peer vote and they voted me captain. I was blown away. And to be honest with you, it was the, out of everything in the sport, that means the most to me because, you know, my peers voted me to be their leader. And it does, it's, you know, looking back on it, like a, a six, seven dual meet season, isn't really that big of a deal, but it was a huge deal. It was our whole world uh, back then. And for me to be the guy to lead the, the team was an incredible honor. 
I say this all the time, you know, my bailiwick is leadership. I teach leadership at the Naval Academy. I'm going to school to learn and, and kind of become an expert in how to train and develop leaders. The most impactful experience that I had in the leadership development realm was being a team captain. I def- definitely didn't feel ready when I stepped into those shoes, but it really kind of made me be the leader that I wanted to be. And having to do it before I felt like I was ready proved to me and, and to the team that I, I could be that person. And it really set me up for success throughout my entire Navy career and then into my career afterward. Well, I I think that's just such a perfect example because a lot of times, what do they say? Like life is the best teacher because the gives you the lesson first and the it the experience after or whatnot. Like it's just a, kind for of backwards sure. of what you think it should be. It's hard, but but it equips you in that way and it grows you into that person. And I, I do know that you love leadership, so I wanted to ask you about that. But after you graduated, you became an explosive ordnance disposal officer in EOD. Like, can you explain to us, like layman people, what exactly that means? Yeah, it's, it's a really cool story. I can I could chat about it for days, obviously, <laughs> but our origins come from World War II. And a, as everyone knows, you know, the Germans were bombing London over and over and over again. And something that a lot of people don't realize is only about half of bombs that were dropped off of aircraft in Europe actually detonated. Oh, wow. Uh, the other half hit the ground and kind of just sit there. And so what you have is this really awful situation where you have a mechanical bomb fuse on a 200, 500,000 pound bomb that's sitting in in an urban area, sometimes near hospitals, sometimes near schools, sometimes near people's homes. Uh, So uh, in the middle of World War II, before America got involved, there was this group of people who got together to say, well, we need to figure out how to get rid of these bombs. That's what the disposal part of our title comes from, uh, ordnance disposal. When something comes off of an aircraft, doesn't detonate, you need to find a, cra- a crazy group of individuals who will go over there, <laughs> figure out how to defuse that bomb and move it somewhere else. Uh, and so that became more and more important as the war developed and uh, the, the tactics moved into the Pacific theater where a similar dud ratio was uh, in existence by things that we had dropped, America, things that J- Japan had dropped, so on and so forth. Um, and the mission sets evolved over time. In the modern era, What we do predominantly is the mitigation of explosive hazards in support of military operations worldwide. The way I explain it is if there is a bomb anywhere that our military forces might encounter, that's where we're going to be to make sure that we can mitigate that explosive hazard. And most of what that is, is IEDs in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 20 years. Our job set encompasses mines, it encompasses uh, aircraft bombs and things like that. But predominantly, our focus has been supporting uh, the global war on terror in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Horn of Africa, and other places. Oh, that's so awesome. So were you, did you always know you were one of those crazy individuals that could be part of this? Like, was that something you always wanted to do? Or did you kind of like happen into it? Because that's, that is intense. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of both. You know, when you get to the Naval Academy, they hit you on day one with like, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? Like, what do, what do you want to do in the fleet, as they say? You know, Top Gun was a big deal when I was a kid. And so oh, a lot yeah. of people go to the Academy and want to be I want to be a naval aviator and I want to fly jets. Well, when I got there, I kind of, I was like, I don't, that's not me. Like, yeah, Top Gun's a great movie, but I'm, I don't want to be, a, I don't want to fly jets. I went on a submarine for a while and I was like, this isn't really for me. What I found was I, I saw a bunch of guys walking around the academy and they had this pin on their chest and it was a, a silver pin that it had, it looked like a scuba diver. And I started asking someone, what is that on your chest? And they said, oh, this is my scuba pin. I got to go to scuba school. And I remember back then I was like, the Navy will pay for you to learn to scuba dive? 
And they were like, yeah. And it's in Panama City, Florida. I was like, that sounds great. Sign me up. So I, I went down. I got the opportunity after my freshman year to go to scuba school. And then so I went back to the Naval Academy and I said, all right, I got it, guys. I know what I want to be. I want to be a scuba diver. And they were like, well, that's not really a thing. Like, that's a capability that we have, but it's not a job set. There are only two job sets that Naval Academy graduates can pursue that dive. One of them is a Navy SEAL and one of them is an EOD officer. At that time, I didn't know anything about EOD. So I spent three years thinking I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. I decided a year from graduation that I really wanted to explore what the EOD community was all about. So I actually had the opportunity to go out to San Diego. I went to an EOD mobile unit and I kind of got to tag along kind of like an internship for three weeks. And we do incredibly cool things. So I got to go to an explosive range where we actually set off some demolition charges. I got to go to a shooting range where we uh, sighted in our weapons. I got to go to a drop zone where EOD techs and SEALs got to jump free fall out of a helicopter. Um, I got to work with our mammal program. So we actually use dolphins to help us find ordnance in the ocean. Are you serious? Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, I... The, that, that day, like I, I show up to work and it's in Point Loma, San Diego, one of the most beautiful places on earth. And there's like these just kind of like pier walkways that are set up in a grid. And you walk out onto this pier and there's this like dolphin trainer standing there. And he's like, all right, before we you know work with the dolphins, we've got to brush their teeth. So he's like, you need to do- brush this dolphin's teeth. So he, he like snaps his finger and the dolphin pops out like right at my feet and it opens its mouth. And I have this giant toothbrush. And I had to go down <laughs> oh and brush gosh. the dolphin's teeth. This is so uh, weird. <laughs> Oh, it was wild. And then he's like, all right, so what we're going to do today is we're going to, they're going to, you know, the dolphins look around just like a a search dog would be, but like at 300 feet underneath the ocean, we can't even scuba dive that far. Um, But these dolphins can swim around and they can find metal shapes in this area that we've set up off the coast of San Diego. So the way it works is there's like a 21 foot Boston whaler that pulls up to these piers and the dolphin trainer just like blows his little whistle and the dolphin jumps out of the water into the Boston whaler. And then, so my job was to hose the dolphin down because when they're dry, you know, they, they, they're out of the water. They can't, you just got to keep their skin wet. So I'm sitting there in the boat with a hose on this dolphin, a 700 pound dolphin whose mouth is about as big as I am, just hosing it down, hoping it doesn't snap at me. Uh, we, we drive maybe two miles off the coast and then the dolphin trainer blows his little whistle again and the dolphin like jumps out of the boat into the water. And then we, we trawl along the coast uh, and the dolphin's just kind of following along, following along. Every once in a while, the dolphin will, will see something uh, with his echolocation, and he'll, he'll hit this little buoy on the side of the, the boat, a little, little red buoy, and then we give him this thing that uh, it's like a clamp that the, the dolphin can bite. And the dolphin will go down to the bottom of the ocean and clip this locator device to the metal thing that's on the bottom of the ocean at 300 feet. Oh and then it'll goodness. come up and say, yeah, didn't I do a good job? And if we have this little uh, device that can tell if they actually clipped it to something metal down there, and if they did, they get a fish. And we train like that for a couple hours. And then we drive back. And that's a day of work for a dolphin in the military. Isn't that wild? Wow. I had no idea we had military dolphins. This is insane. Yep. Wow. Yep. Man, you have gotten to do a little bit of everything, haven't you? Yeah. You know, that, I joined the Navy to kind of sort of see the world and have an adventure. And boy, I got my money's worth for sure. Kind of from day one, I got to do some really incredible things. I traveled all over the world. And you know, who knew there was even a mammal program? And I got to kind of check that out. It's a very small contingent. I don't know that they've done a whole lot across the history of that program. But what, a, what an example of like incredible ingenuity 
yeah. uh, to, to, to train a dolphin to help us out and, and find some, uh, some bad stuff on the bottom of the ocean. Seriously, man. Well, you finally got to start putting some of this stuff into action. You were deployed in 2008 to Iraq. Then a couple of years later, you were deployed again to Afghanistan. Now I, I had a chance to actually go to Iraq with a few athletes. We were just there kind of for, you know, good, good vibes and stuff, but we were visiting right. army bases. Sorry. It wasn't Navy, but, um, that was like January of Oh nine. Um, but it was a very eye opening experience for me, never having been part of any kind of armed service, but you know, some of the bases we saw, they were tiny they were thrown together. The troops were in really dangerous situations. Then others were like these giant cities. And in some way, those big bases kind of almost reminded me of like the athletes village, at, you know, the Olympics. Yes. The Olympics. Um, yep. I, I would love it if you could share a bit about what your different deployments were like for you. Like, were you on ships? Were you on bases? Were you with dolphins? <laughs> what were you doing? Yeah. So definitely no dolphins in the, in the desert for sure. <laughs> It's interesting. You said January of 09. We were there at the same time. Uh, I don't know if you came across a place called Diwania, but Diwania was probably something like in between what you just said. So it wasn't as big as Baghdad. It wasn't as big as uh, some of the other cities in Iraq, but it wasn't like a desert shack either. It was a small city and we had a small base that was right outside the outskirts of the city. And our job then was to work with the local like Iraqi army bomb squad to work with them to train them on how to mitigate IEDs and work with the local police on how to do the same thing. In the lead up to that particular moment, you know, Iraq had been a really bad spot, 06, 07, 08. It had started to calm down right around that time. So we sort of went to Iraq thinking it was going to be this nightmare deployment with all kinds of IEDs and people shooting at us and all that sort of stuff. Uh, It ended up not being like that at all. Um, It was very calm, very permissive. And we spent a lot of time, honestly, in a classroom with the Iraqis, teaching them different tactics and uh-huh. ideas and approaches and how to utilize specialized equipment and things like that. Uh, so it was a very interesting deployment. Definitely not the deployment I thought it was going to be, uh, but very rewarding and, and you know gained a lot of experience in how to work with a different military through a language barrier, uh, so on and so forth. So it was interesting. I don't know what your experience in Iraq was. What did you observe? <laughs> well, I, I was there only there for like eight days. It was uh, me, Shane uh, Miller, uh, Angelo Taylor, and Joey Cheek, a bunch of different athletes. You know, we were just there to like show them our medals, like kind of just lift spirits because they've, you know, been deployed for like 15, 18 months, like long time. Yeah. And we actually stayed in Saddam's palace, crazy enough. And, uh, and that was why we flew Blackhawks um, every day to like three or four different bases every day. And so, it was, yeah, we just saw such a variety. And and one of them, like they actually dropped us off outside of the safe zone. And we were like in our Kevlar running to the tank, like trying to get into the, like, it was a little crazy. And then we get to that base and it is just bullet ridden, like bullets yeah. everywhere, like bullet holes everywhere. It was, you know, it was a little unnerving, but it just gave me such an appreciation. It, it was so weird because the guy in charge there, I remember he was like 28 years old and he was leading all these guys and they, you know, and the place is covered in just bullet holes. And I'm sitting there going, I'm older than this guy. And I, how do you like know what you're doing? How do you do that? Like, it was just, it was so mind blowing to me just never having been in that and just, you know, such young kids in a way, but they grow up so fast or in such serious situations. So that's why I was kind of wondering, yeah, what that time was like, was, was Afghanistan really different from Iraq? Yes, it was. The differences between the two are you could write books and books on the differences. You know, the culture is different. The terrain is different. The means and ways of battle are completely different. And my mission set was different. So when we were in Iraq, our mission set was that of kind of like response. If somebody in the local area finds something that is a suspect explosive, 
they will call us. And it's much like being the fire department. We have a big truck and we kind of sit in a room and just wait for the phone to ring. And if the phone rings and they ask us to go dispatch somewhere, we would you know, respond. That was our mission at Interact. Because there wasn't a whole lot of response, we sort of took the initiative to shift our mission to be more of teachers, teachers of EOD stuff, working with the locals. Um, but that wasn't our primary mission set. In Afghanistan, I was embedded with an assault platoon. So our job was different. Our job was to go on missions, like land a helicopter somewhere, sort of creep into a village in the middle of the night and look for bad guys, look for weapons, look for intelligence, uh, that sort of thing. So instead of being responsive, we were being a lot more proactive. And my job was to be embedded with that assault team in case they encounter something, either IEDs or a weapons cache or something along those lines. And uh, were we to find something like that, I would sort of take over and advise the guy in charge uh, this is what we should do. We should either avoid it or we should blow it up or we should do whatever. It was a lot more intense, like a lot more intense. We'd go on a mission every four days. And at the beginning, we were going to sort of ghost towns. There wasn't a whole lot going on. And then we sort of found out where the where the remaining vestige of, of Taliban fighters were. And the missions got a lot hairier and there were a lot more IEDs and a lot more, you know, contact and things like that. So it was a it was a really stressful deployment, um, and obviously, it ended up in a mishap that rendered rendered me uh, blind. Can Can you take us through that that day of your injury? Sure. You know, so like I said, the the general mission was you know you land the helicopters uh, anywhere from seven kilometers to four kilometers away from the village that you're going to, and you know you'd land in the middle of the night, so it's dark, and we have night vision, and they don't, so it's a si- significant advantage on our behalf. And we would sneak into a particular area and, and go through the area and again, look for look for stuff that we're looking for. That day, we we landed the helicopters in the middle of the night. Fine. We walked into the village. Fine. We kind of determined once we were in a particular village, there were a number of fighters somewhere around us. So we were kind of trying to move to where we thought that they were. And once you're in the village, and this was daytime, it was the, the sun had just come up. It was about seven thirty in the morning or so. In the villages, it's really hairy because there are just there are just so many IEDs everywhere. And there's no real rhyme or reason as to where they were. They might be in a pathway. They might be in the doorway to someone's house. Sometimes they were on rooftops. So a lot of my job was to take a metal detector and kind of walk around looking for IEDs in the ground. At that, that particular moment, I was not the one leading our patrol. My friend Adam, there was, so you always have two EOD techs with every patrol. My friend Adam was the one leading our patrol. Um, and I, from... Uh, a ways back, I couldn't actually see what was happening up at the front, but an explosion went off. And uh, just like you would see in a movie, like kind of a big mushroom cloud went up at the front of our patrol. And I thought my buddy Adam had gotten, uh, had stepped on an IED. So I ran up to the front and uh, what what had happened actually was Adam was fine and all the Americans were fine, but two of the Afghan good guys that we were working with, we always had Afghans in our assault platoon, two of them had been hurt in the in an explosion. So we were trying to get those guys, uh, get them some medical attention and get them away from that site as quickly as possible. And in that sort of chaos, I stepped on another uh, explosive that was located about a meter away from the first one. Thankfully, no one was around me when uh, I stepped on the IED. And, and thankfully, it was set up in such a way that the explosion didn't happen underneath me. It happened in front of me. Uh, so because the, the blast happened in front of me, it came out of the ground and kind of just hit me square in the face, uh, which spared all of my body. You know, I didn't really sustain major injuries from the neck down. And while I sustained 
significant damage to my face. It was all superficial. You know, it was all something that could be put back together. Unfortunately, the glasses I had on got pushed up uh, over my head in the blast and my, my eyes took really bad damage. And, um, you know, that was the, f- the point of focus from the first moment a surgeon started looking at me and they spent uh, a period of three weeks trying to do all kinds of different surgeries to save my face and save my eyes. And they were able to save my face, but they weren't able to save my eyes, unfortunately. So there's, it's kind of a good news, bad news situation. The good news is I walked away with my life. And that's not true for a lot of people in a very similar situation. It's not true for the other two Afghans who were hurt that day. And honestly, when I immediately after the blast, I was convinced that I had died. You know, my experience was I was aware of what was going on. I knew that I had stepped on an IED and I laid there thinking there's no way I survived that. And now I'm just waiting to pass on. So to come back for me was a really incredible experience was very disorienting because when you're in the hospital, you're on a lot of painkillers. But to wake up every day alive, I knew that I, w- I had been very lucky. So I think it's interesting when you go to Walter Reed, everyone's really upset about the vision loss. They're like kind of walking on eggshells talking about whether or not your vision's going to come back. When the doctors delivered the news, you know, we're not going to be able to save your vision. It felt as though my family was very devastated and I was sad for sure. But you know, that was a a small thing compared to coming back alive, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think it's just kind of an interesting experience about how there's always a way to reframe the perspective. And while blindness is a, is a tough battle, you know, I was still very lucky to, to come back alive. Well, and I love that attitude and, um, but I'm, I'm sure there had to be ups and downs. I mean, were, were there ever those moments where you were just like, how do I do this? And when it was scary or, or was it always just, you were super thankful? I mean, how, yeah. How did that, how did you walk that out? There's certainly ups and downs, you know, and I think that there's a difference between existential depression versus momentary frustration, right? Mm -hmm. So I got momentarily frustrated a lot. I mean, my family will tell you, I get pretty mad when (laughs) things aren't going my way or the computer's not working or someone left a cupboard door open or something along those lines. You know, momentary frustration is different than being like, you know, depressed over the loss of, uh, of my vision or, uh, you know, some other people face this net, like if you lose a leg or something, you know, you start to, you can get depressed about, well, I'm not the person that I used to be and all that sort of stuff. I think for the most part, I was able to keep a good head of steam moving forward through that next year. Uh, a lot of the frustration comes from sort of the tactics of being blind. It is really frustrating. And a major frustration of it is things that didn't used to be difficult became very difficult. Things like finding food on the plate or putting toothpaste on a toothbrush or figuring out what to wear in the morning. Just little silly things can end up being very frustrating when you're blind because this shouldn't be hard. I kept thinking, this shouldn't be hard. This is just this child stuff. Like I shouldn't be struggling to wash dishes. You know, this should be easy, but it's a real big struggle. And that was probably the biggest point of frustration. But I think a uh, you know, in, in reflecting on, on all of that, I've learned throughout the process of being better at bl- being blind is understanding that I'm never going to be who I was and that shouldn't prevent me from being who I am. You know, mm-hmm. and I think you have to realize if the source of your frustration is this comparison of who you are now and, and who you were then or what you can do now versus what you can do then, it, that's a, a fruitless you know, conversation with yourself, you know, you just have to say, well, I am who I am now. You know, I only have what I have now. Why get frustrated about what I could, I used to be able to do. Why don't I just focus on improving my skill set right now, right here and right now? Um, I love that. 
yeah, I, I, I think I've been able to embrace that. I like speaking about that because I see people do that all the time. So much of our frustration in our daily lives comes from a mismatch of expectation. I don't want to be sitting in traffic. I want to be somewhere else. Or I wish I, you know, I, I didn't used to have this extra 10 pounds, but now I do. And that frustrates me. Like, well, you know, it is what it is. If you don't like something, just start working towards, you know, getting rid of the 10 pounds or, you know, find a different route to work or whatever it is. I love that. I think you're dead on. I think it's so easy for us to get sucked into what happened in the past or what was going on, even in the middle of a meet. I mean, you can relate. You're an athlete. You understand that. Like if, if a meet starts off bad, like some people are just, oh, this is, this sucks. I'm just going to give up right now. You know, instead of like, yeah. I'm still in it. <laughs> like it's not over yeah. yet. Like let's turn yeah. it around right now. You know, I think that just life is like that. And I, I love that even though you've been through some of the hardest things, like you still, you grab hold of that and you like throw yourself full into that and you're living that way. And I think that's just such a good, you're leading by example, you know, and I absolutely love that. Cause I think a lot of people can talk the talk, but if you can't walk the walk and actually show people how it's done. And I, I love that you're doing that. Thank you for that. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, so at some point, part of your rehab, you returned to the pool. So yeah, how did that kind of all develop? How did it feel to be back in the water? Like, what was that part like? <laughs> so it was, it was kind of miraculous uh, in some ways. Uh, for me, swimming kind of came about because, like I told you, when the surgeons deliver the news that I'm going to be blind, I think it really hit my family harder than it hit me. They didn't have the same experience that I had of the fear of like, I just got blown up and I think that I'm dead and I think that I'm going to see this light and all of that, that. Like, that's a really big experience. And to come back and be like, you're alive and you no longer have to go on one of these missions every day. And all you know, your whole job right now is just to lay there and recover. I'm like, okay, that's not so bad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I can handle that. And for me, I think this, the blindness thing was like an afterthought. Oh yeah, I'm blind. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure that out later. For my family, that was like devastating. Oh my God, I can't imagine what this life is going to be like. This is going to be awful. Oh my gosh. What do blind people do? Can you have a job? Can you do this? And don't get me wrong. I worried about those things much later, but in that particular moment, I was not focused on that at all, but I could tell that everybody is upset. Moreover, everybody who comes into the room to visit me, friends or family or uh, coworkers or whatever else, I can feel in them this angst, this discomfort, this fear or unsettledness or something about the blindness that was really bothering them. And I felt overwhelming pressure. Like I have to make this feel normal as quickly as possible uh, <laughs> for everyone and, and for me as well. Like, yeah. I just want to make blindness normal. Like we started making jokes about it as quickly as possible. I remember being in the hospital and one of my friends was Googling like, what's the coolest thing that a blind dude hasn't done? And we started flipping through and like, oh, a blind dude went to the top of Everest, that one's out. A uh, <laughs> blind dude already went free fall. Like you know, we kind of went through the Guinness, what did, what did blind people not done yet? And we wanted to set that goal. So we were trying to make it normal. It's a good friend right there. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, I have the best friends for sure. <laughs> so swimming again, wasn't high on that list. We were thinking of you know mountaineering and all this other stuff. But by 2011, the year I got hurt, the sort of infrastructure we had to support wounded vets was really outstanding. And it had become like a tried and true, get vets into sports type of thing. And there was this Warrior Games. And back then, the Warrior Games was put on by the USOC, then the USOC in, uh, in Colorado Springs. And there were people coming out of the woodwork who were like actually excited that I was blind because they needed a blind athlete to do certain <laughs> sports. 
And so when it, the suggestion got thrown in there, do you want to do sports? Do you want to do warrior games? Do you want to throw shot put? Do you want to throw discus? Do you want to do swimming? And I, I tried shot put and discus and it turns out I'm still bad at those things, but I was pretty <laughs> good at swimming. And it was a way for me to go to kind of like move things back to a normal space, allow my family and friends to see me the way that I used to be. You know, I was a competitive swimmer for so long. That's what my, my community sees me as. Oh, by the way, it felt amazing for me because in the day-to-day blind struggle, I suck at everything. You know, my toiletry kit's a mess. My closet's a mess. I can't get from point A to point B. I can't figure out what food is on my plate. All these mundane things are just a struggle. And, you know, for a person like me who had got to travel the world and be this deployed special operator or whatever, just to be that bad at everything was a blow to my ego for sure. So it felt nice to go back to doing something I was good at. You know, I, I would swim and I got right off the bat, I kind of figured out how to bounce off the lane lines. And it wasn't uncommon for someone to look at me and be shocked to know that I was blind. When I walk around with a cane, it's obvious that I'm blind. And it's obvious that I'm sort of, that I don't know exactly where I am and all that. When I'm in the water, though, you can't tell. And it felt really good for me to be able to be good at something for a, a couple minutes, which was oh, you know, so tough cool. at that time. Oh, yeah. that's so cool. I love that. And I, okay, so you you wrote a really, I thought, powerful blog post um, that I was, of course, stalking you on your website after Mariel told me all about you. Um, but you talked about the loss of your ability to serve, and that was kind of synonymous with the loss of identity. And I think you're kind of starting to to lean on that a little bit. And that you said that would be proved to be much more substantial than the loss of your eyesight. Can you kind of dive into that a little more? Because I feel like we're kind of going that direction. Yeah, I think that's a that's a common that's a theme that really hits the veteran community almost ubiquitously. This idea that I joined the military when I was eighteen. I, I you know everybody who looks back on when they're 18, 18 year olds don't want to admit this, but I didn't know who I was when I was eighteen. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I didn't know what you know values I had or that I wanted to embody and all that sort of stuff. So I really discovered who I was in the military, wearing the uniform, developing these skill sets, and many veterans start to sort of build their sense of identity around, I was an EOD officer, or I was a submariner, or I was a naval aviator, or whatever it is. Marines, mostly, and you know, Marines have a really hard time letting go of, I'm a Marine. And if you can't let go of that, it doesn't offer you the space to become something else. And that's a major struggle. Um, and if you kind of continue to latch on to that, and like for me, you know, being wounded, I literally can't be an EOD officer anymore. So I knew that it was important for me to find value somewhere else. But that's really tough because I have all of these different skill sets that are not in any way, shape, or form relevant to the normal community. You know, firing a weapon or you know, dismantling an explosive or jumping out of an aircraft or scuba diving or working with marine mammals and all that all these different things that I had done, you know, d- nobody cares about in a, in a boardroom or an office space or anything like that. So it's, it's this tough space to kind of get into. And you go into a corporate room and they speak all this different lingo. I remember I was doing this internship after I got out of the military at this uh, company in Baltimore. And I was in a meeting and that kept saying the P&L sheet, the P&L sheet, the P&L sheet, the P&L sheet. And I've, I was like, I know everyone knows what this P&L sheet is. What is that? What's a P&L sheet? And I asked, and everyone kind of looked at me, profit and loss statement. And they said it like, you dummy. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's, uh, I don't know why I would know that. You know, I, you know right. that's not something that's part of our lingo, but it makes you feel really little and small. Mm-hmm. 
what was nice about getting back into swimming is it, it, it taught me this sort of incremental approach to rebuilding your identity. Just, you know, when you're first blind, you have to figure out, here's your cane. And this is your cane. And, and the way that you cane walk is you clear a space for your next step. And you take a step. You clear a space for your next step. And you take a step. And the first place I want to go to for my hospital room is the bathroom. And that bathroom is only about 10 feet away, but I can figure that out. Once I figure that out, I want to get to the nurse's station, which is about 50 feet away. And I get down to the nurse's station and back. And then I want to figure out how to get out of the ward. So take this little incremental little bit at a time. And it's how we do sports, right? Like you don't go from, you don't start off at the age of 11 going to Olympic caliber swimming. You have to, first I had to learn how to do a flip turn and I had to learn how to do this other stuff. Rebuilding your identity is the same way. You can't do it all at once. You can't write this new mission statement that says here, you know, on day one, this is the new person that I'm going to be. You just have to tackle it day in and day out. And you have to be active in that process and reflect on it on a daily basis. And, you know, I'm still very much a work in progress as far as this notion of identity, but I'm much further down the road than I was on September 8th, 2011 or whatever else. But I think that's a really important conversation to have both in the vet space and the athlete space. Uh, I'm sure you can attest to this, but athletes struggle with this too. Uh, you know, one of the worst things that can happen to you is win a gold medal because you, you win that, you come back, and that's all anybody will see you as for the rest of your life. And that th- you think that's going to be really good until you try to do something else. And that can be tough. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, I think too, uh, from the athlete space, we wrap ourselves up and our identity so much in our performance that we don't see sometimes that we're valuable aside from our performance. You know, whether we're at the top or not, that's how we see our value. Like if we're great, maybe we think our value is great, but if we don't do so good, we think we're worthless. And I think Navy is the same. And, but as, as with an athlete like that, learning how to separate your worth from that identity as your job or as your you know sport or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, those are separate things. I know you talk a lot about like, um, you know, the values that you have and, um, you know, the leadership's being really important. I think sometimes putting more of your value in that and knowing that those, no matter how your performance is, but that those things hold steady, like your virtue, your integrity, like all those things that you're living your life by, if that's holding steady, it doesn't really matter your performance. It's going to ebb and flow, but knowing who you are at the core, I think is, is way more important. And I think that's really kind of what you're getting to the heart of, if I'm correct. Yeah, for sure. And uh, it's interesting. I just had this conversation with the USOPC the other day about how can we reflect that in the way that we measure ourselves? You know, the, the whole, the way the USOPC measures success for every particular games is how many medals did we expect to win and how many did we actually win? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's a recognition that, that, that that's somewhat a shallow metric. You know, that's not actually what we're trying to do. Are we, are we trying to win gold medals or are we trying to create great people? You know, I think most people at this point will say, well, I think we want to create a great Team USA. Like We want to create great people. We want to empower them to be the best versions of themselves. Uh, we really want to start to be process-centric versus outcome-centric. And, and a medal is just an outcome. It's a great outcome. Mm-hmm. It's a life-changing outcome. But for many people, you know, the, the process is something we should be celebrating as well. So I think that's an important, uh, certainly an important dialogue. Well, right. And, and just like, I mean, you know this too, you've stood on the podium a number of times now. I mean, you get the gold medal and it's great. And then 
boom, you know, in half a second, it's over. And that's what you worked all this time for. So what do you take with you? Yes, that 30 seconds on the podium or whatever. I mean, it feels like 30 seconds of probably a few minutes, but it is done in a heartbeat. And it's like almost forgotten about you have this bleak memory, but you know, it's the whole process leading up to it and all the things you went to to get there that really makes you who you are, right? And that really, yeah, it's those defining moments that you go through that, that make you you, you know, and that make yeah. you valuable aside from your performance. But I mean, you, okay. And so getting on to the, the Paralympic part of this, you, you quickly earned a spot after getting back into the water into the U S Paralympic national team for swimming. And then all of a sudden you're at the 2012 Paralympics competing in seven events. You earned two <laughs> golds and a silver. I mean, and to top it off, I love this. Your victory in the 400 meter free happened on September 7th, 2012, which was exactly one year from the day from, of your injury. I mean, I can hardly process all of that. I mean, was that just a total whirlwind? How fast it all happened? Was it, is it just surreal when you look back at it? I mean, cause you just dove right into this whole new life, you know, I, I, just take us through that. Yeah. For, it was surreal is the best word for it, for sure. And also I'd like to highlight too, that I had only been blind for a year at that point. And now looking back on it, having been blind for almost a decade now, you know, I wasn't even close to adjusted. You know, I, you think in the moment, you're like, I got, I got that. I got a handle on this. Not even close. You know, what I'm capable of now, just being able to kind of perceive my space and kind of get from point A to point B, I wasn't anywhere close to that back then. So my awareness was so small. And to be thrust into an, a, a, an event so big, I remember going into the swimming arena and hearing the, the stereo system and no, and someone described to me the LCD screen that was over on one end of the pool and that the crowd was just so loud. And I thought, oh my God, this is just, just the biggest thing I've ever been a part of for sure. And I know it's, the numbers don't add up. It felt like an NFL game, you know, 80,000 people. It was only 18,000, but it still felt That's like a lot I of was, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a lot of people. Yeah. And I felt like, you know, I would just felt so privileged. Like, I would love to go to an event like this, but not only do I get to go, but I'm actually going to do it. Like I'm going to walk out and race in front of all these people. This is incredible. This is, this is what every athlete dreams of, you know, go back to that 11 year old version of yourself. And when you watch the Olympics on TV, I think every one of us imagines ourselves swimming down that lane or up on that block or on the podium eventually. And you imagine that over and over again. And for many of us, you know, I, I put that dream away, you know, at 16, 17, uh, right at the beginning of the Phelps era, I took a one look at Phelps and said, well, I'm not anywhere close to that. So it's just, Nobody that not going to come true. is or was or will yeah, be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, but I put that dream away and I said, oh, I, I don't have what it takes to be that. So I'm going to go and do this other thing. And all of a sudden, before I was even really fully aware of it, I'm in that arena and I'm doing that thing. And it's really incredible. It was like being uh, in a different planet for sure. And it all happened so fast. Like I wasn't even able to process it all as it was all happening. All the way up to that moment I talked to you at the beginning with Marielle in, in the White House and the, the president is standing right there. And I just kind of thought, this is just so bizarre. Like this is not <laughs> my life. This is not how it goes. This is not, you know, one of these moments I'm going to wake up and think, what a wild dream that was. But, you know, it, it was true. And I think the feeling of it was so surreal and just so dreamlike. That's why I wanted to make sure I went back again, because I just felt like as a critic of myself, I would have said it was a fluke. Like it was an accident that you ended up there. You know, you just ended up in the right spot at the right time. You know, you, maybe you didn't deserve to be there. Maybe you just got lucky. So I felt compelled to say, no, I, I've got to go back. I have to prove that I belong there. I have to prove that 
it was real and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, that's, that was what that experience was like. Well, well, so you did go back four years later in Rio and you competed in five events and you won three golds and a silver and you broke a world record that stood for over 30 years. So (laughs) how was that second experience different from the first? So it was completely different in that I was four years more mature as a blind person. I knew what I was getting into. I was far fitter than I've ever been in my life. You know, having a dialed in goal for four years now, no distractions. I, I had a lot of resources put into training. I've never been that fit. And I'm, I'm, I'm confident that. So when I was an able-bodied swimmer, I was a distance swimmer. I swam the mile and the thousand. They don't have events that long in the Paralympics. So I really started to focus on the 50 and 100. Throughout my collegiate career, I didn't, I likely didn't swim the 50 and 100. So statistically, I actually think my blind times may be as fast or faster than my able-bodied times. And I think that's a testament to how fit I was in Rio. But uh, it felt like when I finished all of that, I felt like I belonged. I felt like I, I, I made it happen. I deserve to be here. It's real. And I felt fulfilled. You know, I felt like I had done basically everything that I had wanted to do. To be honest with you, the the silver was sort of in some ways an accident. Like I just swam the hundred back to have a get wet swim before my main events, and it <laughs> I that was kind of lucky. I had a really really great swim. I didn't really train a whole lot of backstroke, and that ended up being a really awesome opportunity. And that's to start off that way it gave me so much confidence. Uh, but the, that that record was the final swim of the whole program, and it really was the epitome of I like left it all in the pool. Like there was nothing left, and I was able to like kind of walk away from the sport a little bit and say, I think I've done everything I want to do there. Ah, what an epic ending. That's really awesome. It it was really cool. It was really cool. And at that point, you know, anybody who finishes their program, it's really neat then at that point, just sort of like go up into the stands and hang out with your family and enjoy being there a little bit. I feel like when you're in business mode, it's really hard to enjoy the whole thing when you're trying to, you know, optimize your performance or whatever. And it was really enjoyable. Well, you also wrote a memoir that year titled uh, Fire in My Eyes, An American Warrior's Journey from Being Blinded on the Battlefield to Gold Medal Victory. Like, where can people grab a copy of that if they want to snag one? Amazon's the far, the far easiest. And if you want to buy a hundred of them, I would recommend bulkbookstore.com. But, you know, one's probably enough. Um, <laughs> going back to that point that I made earlier about... So leading up to 2016, to the, to the games, the Paralympic Games of 2016, I had the opportunity to do like, uh, a lot more interviews, and I had some sponsorships and things like that. And so I was a lot more aware of what does my narrative look like in the eyes of everybody else, my, not only my family and my friends, but like the community at large. And I felt over and over again, people were always, you know, the narrative was always like you overcame blindness. And for me, that wasn't really the experience. You know, the experience was I got to come back to being alive. You know, I, I so happened to lose my vision and I adapted to being blind, but. You know, that's not the, f- the featured part of the narrative. The featured part is like, I essentially conquered death or I got a second chance at life or however you want to say that. And so I wanted to find a way to capture that in the book, you know, to, to, to find a way to get someone to the space where you feel grateful to be blind, you know, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. And it w- you can't, I couldn't do it in a keynote. It was just too hard because nobody knows who I am when I take the stage. And so I have to kind of, tell you who I am. Here's my story. And I was a midshipman and then I went to Iraq and I went to Afghanistan. I got blown up and then I was in the Paralympics. And then, oh, by the way, the point of the story is this. 
it's too hard to do in 45 minutes. So I thought, I want to, I really want to write everything down. Moreover, I have some black marks in my history as well. Like, you know, leading up to my deployment in Afghanistan, I had a pretty epic DUI and almost lost my naval career as a result. And I felt like it was important to kind of wear that stuff on my sleeve because you said something earlier in the podcast that resonated. I, I do take leadership very seriously. I do try to set a positive example. I do try to be a role model. Um, and a lot of people uh, in that lead up to Rio will introduce me with words like hero or you know role model and that sort of stuff. And I felt uncomfortable with that to some extent to say, if you're going to do that, I want you to know the whole thing. Like Go read the book and know the whole balance. You know the good stuff, know the bad stuff. And if that's if you still think I'm worth following, then that's good. I wanted to be honest about that whole thing. So it was important for me to put that book out there. I think that's great. I mean, I think being vulnerable and, and owning up to mistakes and things like that, that only makes you stronger. You know what I mean? Those moments of weakness when you don't run from them, but you recognize them and you grow from them. I mean, that just makes you better, you know? I certainly think so. It's so interesting you use that word vulnerable. It's a very polarizing world, a word in sort of the leadership consulting space. I ask that question all the time. Is it okay for leaders to be vulnerable? And within certain spaces, they say, absolutely not. You know, absolutely not. The leader has to be this pillar of strength, this stalwart example of core values and never make a mistake and high performance and all that sort of stuff. I just, in my experience, I don't think that that's, it's not possible. People are people. People make mistakes. And unless you can learn how to make a mistake and recover from it, to own your mistakes, to be honest, to leave space for everyone to be a human, you know, there's just no way that 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 organization or that space is going to function correctly. You know, I think you're right. You have to be vulnerable. You have to learn how to make a mistake, but then vow not to do it again and and Mm -hmm. to learn something from it. That's an incredible, an incredibly important aspect of life. Yes. Oh, well said. Very well said. Well, okay. I keep seeing pictures of you now you're running and you're biking. Like, are you still just swimming? Are you going to compete toward 2021? Are you doing triathlons now? Like, what are you doing? Triathlon for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think, like I said, I, I, I felt like I had done what I wanted to in the pool uh, coming out of Rio. And, and since then, I've sort of gone back and forth a little bit. I dabbled in some, some swim meets and I got married last year. And so my wife and I went. Yes, congratulations. Oh, thanks. Yep. My beautiful wife is downstairs. She's, uh, we're kind of, the house is turned upside down. She's an internal consultant with Adobe. Um, and so she's down in the, working out of our dining room. And this is her office eventually once we get it set up, but we're not quite there yet. And I thought it was important for her to sort of get a taste of swimming. And so she actually, we went to a meet in Dallas and she got to be my tapper, which was a lot of fun. For those who don't know what tapping is, uh, for blind swimmers, someone stands on the side of the pool and actually bops me with a stick in the shoulder to let me know when I'm about to hit the wall. So being able to do that with Sarah was a lot of fun. But, you know, when I went back and raced, I just, there was nothing I really wanted to accomplish. And I I think, you know, this, like if you want to, succeed at the very highest level, you have to have a, an undying fire in you to do something, whether it's oh, yeah. the gold medal or the, the world record or whatever it is. Um, and for me, I just, I don't know what that is in the pool, but I did find it in triathlon. And so uh, triathlon's a lot of fun. It's a long, a much longer race. Uh, sprint triathlon's still not an Ironman or anything like that. But for me, it's an hour long race, a 750 meter swim, a 20K bike, 5K run. Uh, that's the para distance is about half the Olympic distance. I think it's exactly half the Olympic distance. And it's complex. It's different. Every race course is different. The the swim is in open water. I'm doing it with a guide. So I'm now part of a team uh, as opposed to being on my own. 
the, the, the competitive field worldwide is really, really tight. Uh, and every race unfolds differently. And it's just a really exciting sport to be a part of. And I, I bopped over in 2017 and just really had no clue what I was doing. I thought that I would. I was like, I did a triathlon <laughs> as an able-bodied athlete. This is no problem, right? And I, I got into the, you know, doing it as a blind athlete. It's like a completely different ballpark. And uh, it's been a really long road to where I am now. But now I feel like I know what I'm doing. Uh, I'm in the throes of a really good race. I'm definitely not top. I'm, the, you know, struggling to get sixth and fifth and, and stuff like that at the big races. But I'm in the thick of a good race. And I believe that I have the potential to do something, you know, cool come Tokyo. We thought maybe this summer. But now we're looking to next summer. But in, in any case, it's a very good example of process versus outcome because any race, could, it could be different. And at the end of every race, whether I get sixth or first, I feel like thrill. I feel like just super excited about it. It's such a cool experience. And so I'm happy to be racing. Hopefully, I'll be able to race in Tokyo next year. I'm kind of on track so far. They froze the rankings. I was around fifth, sixth, or seventh. And if I can hold that ranking, I should be named to the team next year. And that will be a really fun way to keep keep in the Paralympic space, but in a new discipline. Ah, that's so cool. I love how you just keep challenging yourself. You're like, eh, I've done everything in the pool. I need a little bit more. Um, I, and I am not, I am not a cardiovascular athlete at all. So anybody doing any kind of cardio stuff is like amazing in my eyes. Cause I am just, I'm the quick twitch, you know, I'm like, just uh, seconds and I get to wait my turn again. <laughs> so yeah, totally different space, but that is awesome. Like did, did the COVID shutdowns, um, and, and the postponement, like, do you think that affected you negatively? Like, how have you dealt with that? Are you excited to have another year? Like, what has that looked like for you? I was initially very disappointed because it's a great example of this whole Delta concept that we're talking about, a mismatch of expectations. So I had expected to go to the games this summer uh, and then shift our focus. I got into Princeton. I'm going to pursue a PhD in policy uh, wow. in, in, New, in New Jersey. And my wife and I just got married and we've been looking forward to this new move and this new adventure. And there was a sense of, I don't know if Tokyo was going to be the last games, but there was definitely a sense of we're going to move on from this and shift our focus elsewhere. And when the games got delayed, it's like, oh man, like, well, now I got to try to figure out how to make it work another year while I'm going back to school. And am I going to be able to keep all these balls in the air? And at, at the beginning, I just, I was looking up at this big hill and thought, oh, I don't know if it's going to work out, but you know, using all the tools in my tool bag of, you know, mental skills and perspective and all the stuff that we've talked about on the podcast so far, over a matter of a week or two, I was like, you know what, like, this is a, an amazing opportunity to sort of bring the world back together after this epic, the terrible thing. Uh, I think the Tokyo games are going to be incredible. I definitely want to be a part of Team USA. I'm going to make this work. And so we found a house, this house that we're in now as a two car garage that we're turning into a gym and it's, oh, sweet. it's awesome. We've got an ergon there, a squat rack, a treadmill, a, uh, a bike on a trainer. Currently we have a sofa in there that needs to find a new home. But once we get that sofa out of there, we'll have plenty of room to do whatever we want to do down there. And my wife and I train together. We train every day. Um, and we're on the, on the road to Tokyo full force. I, we found that fire again. And so it was a, a struggle at first, but now we've got it all built with the move, I had to take a week off. I hurt my Achilles a couple of weeks ago. So I'm kind of on the mend, but I have a whole year to really grind and I'm looking forward to it. And I think the year, the year will be an advantage. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. I, I was kind of an, a little bit similar. Like I was kind of 
I had all these plans to kind of move on and, and be retired and, and get back into normal life with my kids and, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so that year was at first, like, I mean, it was kind of shocking, you know, um, just cause it's never happened before, but at 42 with four kids. Yeah. <laughs> I was kind of <laughs> funny to say, wow, I have a gift of another year, but now I'm really excited. <laughs> I actually just came back from a, a two level cervical fusion. So I have a titanium plate in my yep. neck, uh, which is, you know, don't throw a punch, punch me. You'll, you'll hurt yourself. But, um, you know, it, it took me a long time <laughs> to recover from that. And I just kind of got back up on the top of the platform, um, earlier this year. And so to have another year actually does feel like a gift, even though I'm older, even though it doesn't seem like it should be that I'm, I'm kind of really thankful and, 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 Repumped again that like man I have all this time to like do something more and, and become even more than I could have been this year so yeah, yeah. that's cool well where can we yeah. follow you oh sorry well I was gonna just a, a quick book plug this is just a, a book that I've seen that's really good and I know the guy and he's a pretty smart fella Ryan have you heard of Ryan Holiday yes. he does the Daily Stoic yeah yes so he wrote one of his books is called The Obstacle Is the Way and it's a whole book nested in ancient philosophy that talks about how something like that, the year delay. At first, it feels like a burden. It feels like all this other stuff, but you're able to shift your perspective and say, no, 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 it's going to be an advantage. If you look at it empirically, the delay didn't change. Your perception of it did. And if you start to understand that, you can say the obstacle is the way. The challenge that is in front of me is the way that I'm going to get better. I'm going to turn this challenge into an advantage. And if you can like embrace that mindset, there's like nothing that can set you back. So the year seems like a setback, but most of us have been able to like turn that around and be like, nope, it's not a setback. It's going to be an advantage. The obstacle is the way. I highly recommend that book. Awesome. That's great. Well, we'll make sure to, to link that in the show notes too, but what, where can we find you online so that we can make sure to follow you and cheer you on toward Tokyo 2021? Yeah. So you organically plugged my new website earlier. I don't know if you even knew you did, but my, my wife and I just had a new website built uh, this spring. I have still yet, I've, I've been meaning to get back into blogging and write like a debut post, like, hey, welcome to the new site. But it's actually been up for like two months now. So I'm way behind the curve there. <laughs> but uh, bradsnyder.us is my new website. It's got, uh, my blog is on there. I definitely need to touch it up and do some new writing. And, and hopefully once I get my office set up, I'll be able to do that. But it's got uh, links to all the social media, some photos and some updates about races and all that sort of stuff. So please check that out. And then like I said, my, I'm Brad Snyder USA on Instagram. My wife helps me keep that up to date. And then I'm pretty active on Twitter as well. And so you can engage me with the, those two ways as well. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to link that in the show notes so people can uh, just click real easy there and follow you. But Brad, thank you so much for your time, your inspiration, and truly for your leadership to all of us, because that is exactly what you gave us here today. Uh, it's really been my pleasure. It's been so awesome to chat with you and best of luck on your road to Tokyo. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guests. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.